This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again, and listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DM's Guild affiliate links, and for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 321, we're going to be going for a refreshing swim after trying a new diving board technique called walking the plank, as we discuss Ghosts of Saltmarsh. And joining us for this episode are two returning champions, as well as a, a up-and-coming new voice for us. First up uh, is my favorite non-bullfrog, Jeremiah. Welcome back, Jeremiah McCoy. Greetings. <laughs> Unless you are a bullfrog and I just never noticed. Wow. You're the first person <laughs> to make that joke. I'm, well, sure, have, I'm certain. I've never heard that ever before. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm quite the original. <laughs> also along with us uh, is the Tome Show social media manager and regular contributor. Uh, it is Ishmael Alvarez, who I will not make a Moby Dick joke about. Oh, you see, I was waiting for that because of the <laughs> And that, that's also, that would have been the first time I ever heard that one, too. I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and lastly, our new voice being added to, added to the crowd. He's a regular DM who attends many conventions and has published a time or two. Uh, this is his first appearance on the Tome Show. Welcome, Ben Heisler, to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Did I say your last name right? I should have checked the Yeah, you did great. <laughs> All right, great. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the latest adventure book from Wizards of the Coast, Ghosts of Saltmarsh. It retails for about $50 and is available with a standard cover or a collector's edition cover. It's also available in the usual digital places. This is a book that in many ways is similar to the tales from the Yawning Portal in that it's a collection of previously published adventures that have been converted to 5th edition. While Yawning Portal is dungeon-themed, this book is water-themed. It involves pirates, islands, and underwater villains. Before we get too much further into that, however, I should mention our sponsor, Noble Knight. They're a brick-and-mortar store with an online store as well. And they have not only the latest and greatest, but they also specialize in finding out-of-print products. My pick for this episode is, unsurprisingly, Ghosts of Saltmarsh, the very book that we are discussing. If you hear the review and decide you want to get a copy for yourself, consider getting it over at Noble Knight and letting them know that the Tome Show sent you. Like Tracy mentioned, it retails for $50, but it's $10 cheaper over at NobleKnight.com. Remember when a Sarak built a tomb in Greyhawk? Noble Knight does. Remember when we stood against the giants? Noble Knight does. Remember Thaco? Noble Knight does. Remember when the legendary Dragonlance was recovered to win the war? Noble Knight does. Remember Spelljammer? Mistara? Dark Sun? Planescape? Noble Knight does. Remember Chainmail? First edition? AD&D 3.5 4E? Noble Knight does. Remember all the stories you haven't told yet? All the games you haven't played? Noble Knight, a game store with all the best games from today and tomorrow and back through the ages of gaming history. Head over to thetomeshow.com to find a link to Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again. And be sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Now, on to the review. First things first, disclosure time. Who, besides myself and Tracy, are working from review copies? Anybody? I am not. No. All right. 
So Tracy and I got free books, um, and uh, everybody else paid for theirs. So so you can take that; people can take that into account as they listen to the uh, things that we have to say about it. Some of us paid for it multiple times, even. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, I have it. Uh, I have a physical copy. I have the D and D Beyond copy, and I have the uh, Beetle and Grimm Silver Edition. So I Ooh. have Ooh. bought this book too many damn times. <laughs> I, I have the D and D Beyond version, and I got the special cover from the game store. I actually uh, read the entire book on the D&D Beyond app on my iPad while I was uh, traveling around Europe. So I got a whole different experience because I didn't actually use the physical book when I was reading it. I, I think uh, we should make a point of saying that the special cover uh, is actually the viewpoint of one of the uh, sailors on the boat that's being attacked by a swagon. You can see it in the in the main art for the regular book, the special art is the view from that sailor's point of view. Oh, cool. I thought that was cool. Yeah. When you look at the, uh, the D and D beyond version, it does not include the special cover art. So, um, that's the only thing I have. That's cool. I didn't realize that. So, so let's talk about this book and let's talk about what this book is and what we liked and what we thought could be improved and what have you. Um, so who would like to give us sort of the breakdown of what you can find in this book? Any volunteers? I can take a pass at it. Excellent. Go for it. Uh, Ghost of Saltmarsh is a collection of adventures and a setting uh, and uh, some extra rules beyond that. Um, the There are a total of uh, one, two, three, four, five, seven. Yeah, seven uh, adventures. And uh, one section that is uh, about the town of Saltmarsh itself. Uh, and uh, three of the adventures actually tie into the town of Saltmarsh. And the rest don't uh they're just sort of nebulously nautically themed the rest could but aren't specifically set there right um actually uh, at least one of them really couldn't be set there oh. <laughs> um because it is specifically in a larger city larger port city um and the rest are off the coast somewhere and they you could use salt marsh as the the, the place that you're leaving from. Uh, and there's one that's in a fishing village, a separate fish, uh, fish, fishing village. You could probably make some changes and make it uh, in salt marsh. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the last one is actually specifically set in a city. Uh, it has kind of a, the styes, right? You're right. It has sort of a, the, rundown city element is part of, of the theme there so you really couldn't do that no i was i was thinking that you could probably still still play that adventure with salt marsh as your base of operations you just have to go to sort of this other place uh, as part of this adventure right sure yeah, there's guidance for that one as well as all the other ones that don't take place directly in salt marsh or the surrounding areas um as well as for setting in eberron or for setting in the realms um for our like Adventures League type players um, that want to play this because it's part of the new session zero. Um, but for Greyhawk, they recommend that you put the styes in the city of Primp in Alyssa. Yes, and uh, and and you let you skipped Mistara. Mistara is mentioned we weirdly. I don't understand why, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah. Yeah, I am a 
rather big fan of Mistara. Uh, so I was very pleased to see that. Uh, and also, I, overall, just the Saltmarsh section in general and the references throughout all of the adventures firmly place all of this in Greyhawk. You can make some edits to put them someplace else, but, uh, you know, Thrasadin is, uh, is firmly a, uh, a Greyhawk thing. Ios is a, uh, Greyhawk thing. The Scarlet Brotherhood is a Greyhawk thing. There's so many sort of in references to Greyhawk that it is really solidly placed there. Hmm. I, I mean, I would I would argue a little bit with you on Thera's Done in that uh, Thera's Done is definitely solidly originated in Greyhawk, but in recent storylines was migrated to the realms because Thera's Done played heavily in Princes of the Apocalypse, which was set in the realms. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> so not not to quibble with you. To be fair, though, the original. Uh, uh... Temple of Elemental Evil was set in Greyhawk, so I think that was kind of like a little port over, kind of like a little. Yeah, no, absolutely, over. absolutely, it was. Yeah. And would it be because I know you guys are going pretty uh, quickly into the Lord? Just uh, help a little bit because you talked about like three of them um, are really about uh, Saltmarsh. Saltmarsh. Uh, is that because they were part of the original trilogy? Yes. Yeah. So the there was originally a, a series. Uh, that came out, wait, was it first edition? Yeah, it must have yeah. been first edition. Uh, the Sinister Secret of Salt Marsh, Danger at Dunwater, and the other one was the the one with the Sahawagan, right? The yeah. Final Enemy. Yeah. Uh, and so those three directly connect to each other, but then but they're not together in the order in the book. The order of the book um, is set up in such a way that it follows like a level progression. Uh, and there's a gap in levels between Danger at Dunwater and the Final Enemy, and so there's a couple of adventures that that are, were squeezed in in between there. Yeah, and uh, these are originally the U series of adventures, published by the TSR UK group, the same people who came up with the Fiend Folio, which yeah. uh, had a very different look and feel to it as well from the rest of the D and D stuff that was being produced at the time. Um, and, uh, uh, these adventures are very much written in a modern style, um, uh, as opposed to other adventures from their time. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more talk before you stab going on here. Right. Um, yeah, no, these are, these are, I mean, this is not the tomb of horrors, right? This is not, um, what we're used to from this time period of D and D because the UK group, had a different approach that is more common today, right? I think we learned a lot from them. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And was um, Saltmarsh itself as uh, defined out in those original adventures? Because it seems like we have, get a lot of detail about Saltmarsh, the people, the factions, and I just, I, I never read the original adventures, so I was curious about that because I'll just be honest, it felt like a New England town when I was reading it around the Revolutionary War time. So that, I thought that was kind of interesting. Hmm. Uh, the original adventures, and I've only read one of them, mind you. Uh, I'm old, but <laughs> I didn't do everything back then. Um, uh, not like you do today. Yes, not like today. But um, the original adventures mentioned Salt Marsh and gave a very cursory explanation of what the town was like. Nothing of this level of detail. 
Okay. Was it similar to to the way uh, Hamlet was originally described back in the day? Yeah, a little bit. It's okay. just like a really brief overview, not a whole lot of details. And a couple of NPCs and, and call it good. Yeah, and, and you know, um, you know, I don't even, if I remember correctly, it didn't even mention that it was in Kaoland. Uh, hmm. So, I mean, it was really sparse information. Okay. So, yeah, so that, I mean, that's the, I guess, the book in a nutshell, right? And so you have these seven adventures uh, that have all been converted. But other than the the three that are tied together from back in the first edition days, The Sinister Secret of Salt Marsh, uh, Danger at Dunwater, and uh, The Final Enemy, um, the other ones, as I recall, all came from various issues of Dungeon Magazine. Am I wrong? That sounds correct. I was about to say, that sounds right. I don't actually recall where they're all from. Well, I, I was always really interested in reading the little uh, blurb at the beginning of each uh, section, each chapter, that sort of gave the history of where it came from and who wrote it, the original, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, uh, my recollection was that they were all from Dungeon Magazine, but I might—I mean, it's possible I missed something. But, uh, but, there, the, but the point being really old like first edition adventures tended to be very short dungeon magazine adventures of course because they're in a, they're one adventure of many in a magazine that was coming out monthly um also had to be very short so i found all of these adventures to be quite like compact right they all even with the the added parts that that um the team added to this and this was largely um Done. The work for this book was largely done by Cobalt Press for Wizards of the Coast. Uh, if you look, at least if you look at the names uh, of the people who worked on it, I don't think they were credited as Cobalt Press, but it's Wolfgang Bauer and Steve Winter and all these guys that um, work for Cobalt Press. <laughs> so, um, so, so anyway, yeah. So they've they've added some stuff and they've they've ex- expanded it and extended it and whatever. But they're all. I found them to be all be really like quick and compact like a lot of them sinister secrets of salt Martin, the original trilogy right were all um they call them an adventure but they were really like a couple of key encounters in a small location and that was it right yeah yeah i mean uh the the adventures in the the original uh, only i think had like one or two locations in them so and honestly i feel I feel okay about that, right? Because a lot of times that's what I need. I don't what I don't need usually in my games is Tales from the Yawning Portal, right? I don't need a giant dungeon that's going to take my my players months and months to to get through. But if I'm looking for a little side quest or whatever, right? This is the perfect kind of thing to to throw into my game cuz we're going to we're you're going to be able to get through the entire adventure in, in basically a one shot. You'll you'll advance a little story here, you'll develop some NPCs and the and the players will will get to do some stuff and it's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I could see that happening for Sinister Secret and Danger at Dunwater. The final enemy has uh, is a big base with three floors uh, and I could see it turning so it's originally designed to be kind of a stealth encounter, um, but if you get caught, it could turn into a big, nasty, large combat through three different floors. Or if your stealth mission is successful, and then you turn back around and go back there to you know kick indoors, and I can see that taking a number of sessions to go through and get pretty grindy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and there were several that were that were a little bit um, longer. I felt like the Styes, which was the the higher level uh, adventure, was another one that could take a little while. 
But even like salvage operation in the Isle of the Abbey is really like a key interesting location and, and you know, uh, a few encounters that make sense g- given the story. And it didn't have to be more than a, basically a one shot for either of those. Yep, I can see that for both of those. And, and, that, and that really appealed to me. Overall, actually, quite a bit of the adventures have a horror feel to them. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Lovecraftian uh, influence here. Um, and, I mean, some more explicit than others. And then, like, the, the one, uh, the Tamara, uh, Tamarot's Fate. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you're... Uh, being held in siege against, uh, you know, basically a legion of undead uh, sailors. That's, I mean, that that's very horror film esque. Mm-hmm. See, my problem is, I like my well there has been poisoned by the Pirates of the Caribbean, like the the recent movies with Johnny Depp and all that stuff. So as soon as I started reading about that, where it's like these, you know, somewhat fish people, and they have you know, pieces growing out of things like that. I was like, oh, so it's just like, you know, Davy Jones with a giant squid head and all that stuff. But this is, you know, this is mostly a combat one. When you get to the styes, though, I definitely agree with you that it's, the tonal shift is significantly different than the other ones. Well, in fairness to them, like, I don't think any of these were published after Pirates of the Caribbean came out. Like, those movies are recent enough and these adventures are old enough. I think the adventures came first. Sure, sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm not... I'm just saying, from no, my point of absolutely. view, I guess as a younger DM, when I read this, I'm like, oh, okay, this this speaks to me more than it speaks to horror, uh, rather than the styes, which is definitely like, oh, we have stepped into Lovecraft country. There, there is actually an event, uh, a movie that came out in the '80s that most people, admittedly, didn't see, but it was a John Carpenter film called The Fog, and the fog oh, rolls yeah. in. And uh, undead pirates uh, are hidden in this fog, and they're coming to the town uh, to kill people. And it's terrifying. Like you don't see them coming, and suddenly they're you know they're they're in the in the building with you as as the doors open, and it's you know it's a a really well done. It's Carpenter. He does that sort of thing really well. And I suspect that that had a lot of influence on Tabernod's fate. Um, uh, the Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh feels very much like a Lovecraft story, crossed with a uh, Scooby-Doo. I was going to say, That's yes. what I was thinking. <laughs> See, like, for me, that was like 100% Scooby-Doo, and then it goes on this weird political side with Danger at Dunwater, and like... Where are these weapons coming from? And trade, and you know, intrigue, and da da da. Um, so I never got like the horror part from that either. Well, Scooby Doo is Scooby Doo is horror, right? Scooby Doo is is fun cartoon light horror, but it's it's Stinky. sort of kids' first taste into horror. <laughs> well, sure, and uh, but like the <laughs> if you look at the the core base framing. It's an old house where an alchemist used to live who did terrible experiments. Yeah, and, and and as you go into the place to investigate the terrible things he did, you find the terrible things he did to himself. That's a that's a Lovecraft horror hook. Mm. Um, yeah, not, it doesn't play out Lovecraftian, but it certainly has that that well, foundation. A lot right? of a lot of Lovecraft stories were not. There is an elder horror from beyond space and time trying to eat you. Sometimes it was 
somebody is researching a thing that they shouldn't and unleash forces that they shouldn't have. Mm. And it very much plays into that. And then midway through you, you get the turn and it's, Oh, it's a Scooby-Doo adventure. Right. And Lovecraft is New England. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's the, yep. the town, the swaggin, that's all very like, um, very Lovecraftian. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, the, 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 uh, not the Dunachar, but the, something Innsmouth? out of Innsmouth. Yeah. Innsmouth. Yeah. Uh, is the, the story set in Innsmouth that he wrote is about the basically swaggin that have been interbreeding with the people living in the town. So, uh, you, you have that here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think the styes is, you know, planting its flag in the Lovecraftian roots and letting it fly. Well, and, and that's actually one of the things that I found to be interesting and I'm, I'm not sure entirely how I think about it, but, um, the the stories the adventures here with a couple of exceptions uh or a couple of moments that are exceptions as much as they're sort of aquatically themed they're not really aquatic adventures you know what i mean like there's not a lot of you know they they have the whole appendix at the end and we can talk about that that gives you rules for ship to ship combat and sailing and and all that kind of stuff but that's not part of any of these stories like there's not a lot of sailing around and exploring and uh you know fighting pirates and on the high seas and or going underwater and talking to the sea elves or whatever it is right um there's very very little of that uh it's mostly a well yeah we take a boat but we take a boat to get to a place and then that's where the story happens on that island or on you know over uh, up the coast or whatever yeah it seemed like uh mostly what they were doing was including a lot of that stuff to fill in the in-between so that like the travel from point A to point B maybe didn't have to be uh, as uneventful and then you could do the ship-to-ship combat but they didn't explicitly seem to put any kind of like you're right it wasn't like a, a specific like maritime adventure where like a lot of stuff was happening on the ocean uh, although we were kind of it was kind of pitched that way that this is a series of stories around that kind of a story uh, that kind of a theme right mm-hmm. I- yeah I would argue salvage operation is probably the most nautical. Yes, I would agree. Yep. Uh, but yes, and, it, and 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 that one. Let me tell you, <laughs> salvage operation. I like the like the whole idea is is there's a ship. Um, it's been damaged. It's floating around out there. Get to it and pull this box off for me. Oh yeah, and then like the giant octopus starts tearing it apart as you are in the bottom of the of the hold, and now it becomes an escape adventure. And that that one comes off real fun to me. I'll t- I gotta say. Well, I mean, it's it, it it's almost a cursed ship trope. Ah, yeah, it's true. Um, and you know, like. Yes, there are terrible things on the ship, and uh, you know, you got uh, worshippers of Lulth, and you, you, eventually you have to uh, try and escape the ship before it's eaten by a giant octopus. This is this is also horror material, if you want it sure. to be. Uh, if you don't, then don't play it that way. But right. But there's undead tromping around at the bottom of that ship, as I recall. Yep. Yep. So. <laughs> So yeah, uh, you know that that one's definitely the the most nautical um, 
in in its in the way it plays. The rest of them are just sort of nautically adjacent, you know. Um, so I, I and I don't know how people feel about that. I don't you know. I generally, as a rule, I was interested to see if they were going to go because I wasn't previously familiar with like any of these adventures. So I was curious if they were going to go into underwater combat and and have to flesh all that out or at least explain it to people because. Um, there's rules for it in the DMG, but nobody reads the DMG. Um, so, so I was curious if that's where they were going to go with this and it's not. And on one hand, that's fine for me because I don't, I've done the underwater combat thing and I don't know that I don't want to do that very often. Right. It's a fun little vignette. You do it once or twice, but then stop it. Right. It's annoying. (laughs) So, uh, ship to ship combat. I kind of feel the same way. Right. It's, it's kind of a fun little thing to do every now and then, but then like knock it off. Let's just, let's just go back to D and D. Right. Um, I, I mean, the, the appendix certainly deals with a lot more underwater stuff and some of the adventures are explicitly underwater. Um, the, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the final enemy and, um, Mm -hmm. and the styes both have significant underwater portions. Right. Um, I mean, the the confrontation against uh, Therizidin's uh, progeny is in a deep underwater pit against, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, a, a uh, kraken, a, a, a juvenile kraken. So mm-hmm. you can't get much more underwatery than that, but. Which, sure. by the way, I mean, a baby kraken is huge. This is oh, really yeah. huge. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, no, and, and I don't want people to think that I'm complaining about this because it, it just was a little bit of a surprise to me because that's not what I was expected from the, the hype that, that went into this book prior to its release. Um, and yet, this is, like, I came into this book ready to be disappointed in kind of the way... Uh, to be, if I'm being honest, Yawning Portal disappointed me in as much as like, hey, these are really cool, iconic things, but I have no use for any of this. Like, I'm not going to use any of these things, right? It's not going to fit into my larger campaign or my story or whatever. Um, but this one, like, I immediately started thinking about ways that I could, because they're so short and in many cases modular, like, um, this could very easily fit into a larger campaign that I'm running. And it feels a lot more functional to me. Uh, as a book, even as a collection of, of updated old adventures, right? And I think that's a benefit uh, for the more like casual type of play. But I think if in designing a Saltmarsh campaign, weaving the pieces mm-hmm. together and having enough stuff going on that is uh, interesting and, as we previously said, nautically themed, since there's not as much of that outside of the appendix, uh, is a little more difficult. Like, right. Saltmarsh itself is really well detailed as far as there are these competing factions, there are these groups that want different things. Um, and then it's just kind of like, like here's the pieces and here's a couple like random encounter table things that you can do and go. And it's like, eh? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think uh, I, I would agree in that it felt like, here's Saltmarsh, and all the wonderful tools that we'll give you in Saltmarsh, all of the, the setup, all of the factions, all of the, the diff- competing interests and things that you can be interested in doing, and none of these adventures are going to deal with those. 
Right. Um, even the, I mean, some of the hook, some of the hooks do, but not not deeply. Yeah, I mean the the adventures of the um, the the three that are tied to the town, right? Don't actually tie to any of the competing factions. Really, they don't. Mm-hmm. It's just you know they that's your starting point. My takeaway from this, of course, is you know being the kind of person that I am is I could take this and be like. I could build, spin out an entire campaign out of Salt Marsh, and I'd use those three adventures and maybe one of the others, right. and uh, the rest would be me playing with the implications of what's in the Salt Marsh section. Right. Yeah, I can absolutely like a lot. Sometimes when I'm running a larger campaign that I'm that I've homebrewed and I've made myself, occasionally I will want to throw in a published adventure just to, to give myself a break from planning. Uh, for the game, right? And so if you if you're gonna use the salt marsh setting, then you've got a bunch of you got a handful a bunch. You got seven adventures here that you could kind of tie into that that location with minimal effort if if not uh, easily. Uh, that that gives you that opportunity to sort of take a breather uh, and not have to make it all up. Yeah. That's that's if I was gonna do a salt marsh campaign and really tie these all together, that's how I would do it. I was very pleasantly surprised about the politics of it in the town, mm. in large part because they're both sides definitely had pros and cons potentially, you know, or at least had points. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a lot more gray in that area. And um, while they didn't go into it too much in in the book, you could start actually like digging into some meaty topics that maybe you wouldn't <laughs> normally see at a gaming table. Um, through the setup there of the factions, and then if you decided, then you throw in the third party. Um, the what are they? The red something? Sorry. Oh, the Scarlet red Brotherhood. Brotherhood. Yeah, red Scarlet Brotherhood. Yeah, the, the Scarlet Brotherhood. They just could like throw everything up in the air, and and you could have to try to figure out how to get these people who are currently enemies uh, working together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, there's a lot going on because, like, because they talk about. I mean, it's a it's a not a or, um, a sea based campaign, so a lot of it obviously are the merchants who have ships, um, you know. Uh, but there's also the undercurrent of there's uh, slavery going on through the ships. Um, that's how they're making some of their money. Some of their money is also through pirating slash smuggling, which was very common. For instance, and I don't mean to keep bringing it up, New England, <laughs> a lot of the. <laughs> historical storied families of new england had ties back to these sorts of things and then how do you deal with that going forward um Mm -hmm. and then you can even like decide to start looking at things like the when the industrial revolution came in through the mining because it's a move from sea and fishing to more of uh manufacturing type stuff so I thought which is what we're getting with the dwarves here that are just starting to do the same thing yeah Yeah, so i thought it was just I thought it, that was like immediately was what I loved about it because <laughs> I could see it and it was cool to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's awesome. Uh, I would also add that uh, the salt marsh backgrounds, uh, if you're going to be doing nautical adventures and at least one of your characters does not have shipwright, you may be missing out <laughs> because the feature I'll patch it allows you it's crucial it's crucial yeah. <laughs> it's like, why why would you it, it is of a level of why are you not taking this hmm. it, why at least one of you is not taking this is a problem if you're going to be doing nautical adventures but yeah i mm-hmm. I, I agree with tracy completely that the the 
the factions have believable, understandable motivations. And they're not just all muahaha evil. I mean, yes, the Scarlet Brotherhood is. They worship Ayuz. Ayuz is a demigod of evil. Uh, he's a bad guy. Even Vecna doesn't like him. Right. <laughs> So, so they're they're the bad bad guys, but they're not likely to be anybody's patron, right? They're they're the villain that you know is the villain, uh, because that's useful in in storytelling as well. Sure, um, but I mean they're they're villains, but you don't know uh, up front that these guys are the villains until you run realize that they're there. It's like mm-hmm. finding out that there are secret Nazis in your town. <laughs> oh, you're Nazis. Oh, okay, you're bad guys. I get it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I tell you, um, I've, I am getting ready for a, a big move halfway across the country, and I've, I've, uh, I've started to talk to a, a group of players, and I'm get, getting ideas flowing with them and conversations flowing with them for a new campaign. And I think I'm going to do my crazy mashup of uh, Dragon Heist that then t- turns into Curse of Strahd. And as I'm reading this book, unlike um, some other books that I've read, I'm reading this book and I'm like, oh, almost all of these, because of the way they function with a little bit of filing off the serial numbers, could become the side quest, the faction quests in Dragon Heist. You know, the levels are about right for a lot of them. Uh, and, and it's about protecting the town or whatever. I could totally see, you know, the 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 lord's alliance faction or force gray being like hey we got some weird stuff going on at this haunted house you're kind of newbies you'd be good at looking into this go check it out for us you know uh, and making that sort of side quest because they're nice and short and compact right um and they're not gonna they're n- none of them are gonna be like uh, a big huge thing it's it, they're almost all about the same size as those little uh, faction quests in dragon heist so um I'm going to take my already crazy mashup and, and add another uh, book, I think, and, and make it even crazier. Well, wait a second. Could you turn Dragon Heist into like a Treasure Island style, like pirate, like you got to go find the treasure on an island kind of thing? Maybe, although <laughs> it's worth noting that my uh, my potential new players have also decided, because I gave them this option, uh, that they'd like to check out playing in Eberron. So uh, we're oh. going to be in... So it's going to be Dragon Heist in Sharn, I think, is the plan. Gotcha. So, it sounds like <laughs> just fun. Cause, just because I like to mash all kinds of things up because it's the only way I can get through all the products and play them all. Sure. Is by doing three at once. Um, but yeah, I, uh, to go back with Tracy's point, the, the, the whole thing here, the whole setup for Salt Marsh itself makes for great adventures, uh, great mm-hmm. uh, conflicts. You could run just based off of what's in the salt marsh section you could actually run a decent game off mm-hmm. the conflicts that they give you um so. oh yeah absolutely i think the salt marsh setting is detailed enough and now if you if you left salt marsh right it, it sort of hints at some larger greyhawk stuff but if you left salt marsh there's not you're not going to find a lot of support for that here uh, but a lot of times you know the suggestions for for campaign building and world building is start small and then build out as necessary as the players leave. So I think I would just stick salt marsh, not in, in Greyhawk in just some sort of, you know, some homebrew setting. And then as the players went off to other places, I, I, I'd make that up, you know, cause 
I don't have the background with Greyhawk to, to really set it there. Um, I, yeah, you could certainly do that. Um, or, you know, uh, you could become a scholar of old uh, gaming lore and uh, spend many hours <laughs> reading entirely too many old Dragon Magazine articles and, and tracking down old copies of adventures that are out of print and they haven't made it onto the... That sounds like a good use of my time yeah, and money. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say, out of print, isn't that what Noble Knight's for? It, right. That is. That, uh, that is what Noble Knight's for. Uh, and also, <laughs> it's possible that I'm I'm having a bit of uh, flashback here. <laughs> Some trauma that I'm working through. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh... You can do that if you want to, but... <laughs> I think my, my way is easier. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as someone that is, uh, so I'm playing with, I'm about to run this for a group of folks that did play Living Greyhawk back in the day, and they're oh, wow. super excited about playing in Greyhawk. I did not play Living Greyhawk, so I'm having to do a lot of searching and learning and Googling and purchasing <laughs> of old books. And let me tell you, when people complain about how poorly edited adventures and books are now, let me tell you, friends, <laughs> you go back to the Living Greyhawk Gazetteer, it is hard to read. Um, and when you get back to some of those adventures, I have found a few people willing to share files of old, old Living Greyhawk adventures, and some of those are really difficult to parse through as well. But uh, I hope that the amount of research I'm doing is going to uh, make the players I have that played through all that time uh, very happy with the effort I put through. Yeah, yeah. those kinds of things in my experience either go really well because they, they appreciate all the little nods and cameos and, and that you know a little bit to, to help them sort of re, you know, re-experience their nostalgia. Uh, or it goes really poorly because they're like, hey, you're messing it up because that's not the lore I remember. <laughs> right? So uh, at the end of the day, I think you sit down and, and you've got a good group of players and everybody's mostly interested in sitting down and having fun and playing a game anyway. So I, I'm going to go back to that uh, mention of uh, them giving the details on Mistara. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that because that's weird to me. Um, I mean, <laughs> for what it's worth, I am probably our resident expert on Mistara. I don't think anybody else in our usual crew of of uh, compatriots. Uh, the, the only person I would question is maybe Sam, but I don't know. Yeah, uh, Sam, I think is is as much into it as I am. Um, but yeah, you know, I've done like videos you know breaking down different setting uh books that they wrote and everything mistara is kind of of an age with greyhawk uh and mm -hmm. forgotten realms and drag uh dragonlance all of them sort of were growing around the same time uh, and they all had very consistent themes they're all largely european inspired uh, right uh, with some notable exceptions, uh, there was in fact a culture uh, in uh, Mistara that was Native American inspired, um, which uh, was points for effort, I guess. Um, <laughs> like it's, yes. it's nice. The, the, rel the realms is rife with with other culture stereotypes, right? Yeah, it's like <laughs> so. I, I get what you were trying to do. You were trying to be helpful, but mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, they 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 
um, uh, it is an interesting setting, and it's interesting that they mentioned it here because I can't remember any other five E product outside of maybe the drag the Dungeon Master's Guide that mentions. But nobody nobody reads that. Yeah, and nobody reads that <laughs> that mentions Mistara at all. No, and that was actually going to be my, my my question or my point was like that's why Mistara listed on here is really weird to me because there's no support for it literally anywhere else. It's never really mentioned. Nothing else is set there. There's no products that that are tied to it. Um, you know, Eberron's got a little bit of support, but they knew when they were publishing this or writing this that Eberron was coming next. Sure. Um, so like that makes some sense. The Forgotten Realms has been supported since the launch of fifth edition, but like, yeah, Mistara to me is like, well, we don't know of any upcoming support for it and there hasn't been any support for it prior to this. I, I, that's weird. Hey, we could say the same with Greyhawk though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But, but the adventures are originally set in Greyhawk. Yeah. But I mean, they they took a whole bunch of adventures for Yawning Portal and put them, you know, Faerun-esque. So they could have just done well, this, right? The, the, so except they didn't really, right? Yawn, the 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 premise behind Yawning Portal was, well, there's people that come there from all over all over the plains, and they're telling stories about dungeons they've that they've encountered. So they weren't necessarily in the realms; they were just being talked about in the realms, right? Right. Um, but and the settings weren't changed in Yawning Portal at all. It's just that they're dungeon crawls, so the settings weren't particularly important. Um, you know. Well, the, uh, but they also did bring up Mordenkainen. Um, they did. Who yeah, was but he ex- was also brought up in Strahd. Like, sure, right? But he is explicitly a Greyhawk creation mm-hmm. that got migrated over. I mean, there were references to Greyhawk in the other products by having him and a couple of other things, like the in the Morning Kindness, uh book. He actually uh, talks a little bit about things from Greyhawk in that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that book. Which is supposed to be multiplanar. I don't think there's anything about Mistara. Uh, no, I don't think so. And, and no, and I think Greyhawk is serving in those two products uh, much in the way that Greyhawk functioned during the third edition days, in that it's just sort of the neutral background. And and the larger setting of Greyhawk isn't something you really need to know because you're going to do what you want with these these stories anyway. Um, that's kind of how I feel about how they're using Greyhawk. Sure. Uh, other than I know, other than I know, a bunch of the people at Watsi are really big fans of Greyhawk, uh, and yet can't seem to turn that into products, right? So this is maybe their little homage to that. Well, I also I think that um, there is something to be said because, like I said, the uh, Dragonlance, Greyhawk, Forgotten Realms, and Mistara, in some ways, are pretty interchangeable. Because they are mm. share some s- similar influences in their creation, right? Uh, like they all they all have their own unique histories, like it mm-hmm. their their own lores. But the differences between them are mostly minor. Like Mistara mm-hmm. doesn't have gods, um. So there is that. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, but if I'm but if I'm a farmer in one of those worlds and I find myself accidentally teleported to another one, sure. I can probably continue to apply my trade and the culture is basically the same. Yeah, right? the, the the adventurers in Mistara are going to be more or less interchangeable with adventurers in Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk 
or Dragonlance or mm-hmm. Eberron to a certain extent. Uh, but, you know, Eberron has that sort of subtext of magical technology all around it. But, right. but yeah, I, the uh, because they are largely European-inspired, uh, uh, they... The, the village is going to look the same no matter which setting you put it in. Um, but, yeah, it is weird that they put it in there. It is, you know, as a fan of that setting, um, I, I hope that they do uh, right. something with it later. Is, it, is this is this a hint that they have plans that they haven't told us? Yeah. I mean, it, we started is this seeing mentions of, uh, you know... Uh, Things involving Avernus before they announced Avernus, uh, they saw. Well, they do that a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. They... I conti- I continue to insist that we are going to see an homage to the Great Mojin March coming up soon because Mojins have appeared in almost every single adventure that they published, except this one, apparently. Well, but this one isn't really a, a, an adventure, right? It's a collection, just like Yawning Portal. Sure. I think the only one that didn't is was Curse of Strahd, which went to another place, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although they have mentioned that they've been putting like black obelisks, that's a conversation for another time. But mm-hmm. like I think Perkins has mentioned, like there's something about some black obelisks that show up in every adventure that's going to come up later, and I don't think it has yet. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I think I, I mean I think they've definitely and even uh, you know you you've heard stories probably that going back into uh, the original monster manual they were laying groundwork in that original monster manual for like Storm King's Thunder. Sure. If you read the the giant section in in detail because they knew that that was coming down the pike. Uh, so is Mistara in here? A clue that there's something coming that's Mistara related in the future. Are there any like iconic Mistara adventures that they might? Yes. D- do uh, a nod to because I can't. Th- I can't. I, I never played in Mistara. I never read the setting. I don't really know what the iconic Mistara adventures are that are like a common touchstone to the culture. I think Isle of Dread is probably the first one that comes to mind. Yeah. Oh, uh, was that a Mistara adventure? Yeah. yeah. Okay. See, I think I just assumed that was Greyhawk because so much of that time period was. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, uh, uh, the Isle of Dread uh, is probably the most famous. Okay. Uh, and I think a third-party publisher recently released a fifth edition sort of homage is that one of the ones that um, I know Goodman Games did one back in fourth edition, and they may and they've been publishing some updates to older adventures uh, for fifth edition under a license. So uh, I don't know if it's it's possibly something they've been doing. Yeah, they they, they certainly uh, listed. It, it was the default setting for all the boxed games. To be fair. okay. Uh, so the, the basic of the event. Uh, uh, expert, the the companion, and the master, um, all were uh, set in that setting. Um, Masters of the Desert Nomads was a pretty big one. Uh, Red Arrow, Black Shield was a, a big one. Uh, what was another good one? Uh, uh, oh, uh, there was one which actually involved. There was one series. I'm trying to remember the name of them that involved going back to Blackmore. Blackmore was the mm. ancient past of Mistara. And, mm-hmm. and you would go back thousands, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to 
the time of Blackmore and see the fall of Blackmore. And I think we've completely derailed. <laughs> no, well, yeah, I was going to ask. We, we, uh, I mean, like, are we talking about Solver well, still, or are we talking about all the pictures from something else completely? Sorry, we're, we're talking about Mistara now, but uh, yeah, no. So I, but but the point being that that Saltmarsh may be laying some groundwork for them exploring some some Mistara. Um, originated adventures right and and uh i did discover on a side note that you know to take another slight tangent uh isle of dread was recently updated to fifth edition um by goodman games so you can actually get isle of dread only updated stats so uh but yeah so so yeah the the mistara thing is weird to me and i don't know if they're gonna do anything with it um or not (laughs) So, and if they are, I don't know what they would do, but, but I'll, I'm always curious to find out. So, uh, not to, not to drop the worst pun ever, but I think, uh, salt marsh is probably just testing the waters, uh, in terms of like, you know, Hey, are people going to want to gravitate towards Greyhawk, which I think they want them to, because they give you Greyhawk, but they don't give you Greyhawk. They give you a little taste of Greyhawk there with Mm. salt marsh. And I'm wondering if they're going to start doing, and like, I think Salt Marsh, if I'm not mistaken, is was more of like a mid-season release because it didn't come out with another book like they usually do. Um, it wasn't part of a storyline. It didn't even tie into Adventures League, which was kind of unusual. Although Adventures well, it, isn't kind of interesting. So it will. Um, so Salt Marsh is a, the season. So with Avernus, they're going to seasons, uh, but Salt Marsh is season agnostic, and the Dreams of the Red Wizard yeah. campaign that is season agnostic will be connected somehow to Salt Marsh. How? Who knows? Since it's it's a bit of a stretch to me, but uh, I trust that mm. the admins will figure something out. <laughs> uh, to that to that end, I wonder if we're going to see these uh, quote unquote mid season season agnostic what have you releases uh, that aren't going to tie to the larger storyline of like what's happening in in Faerun. Uh, because that's what Avernus is going to be, and I presume the big the next big release after that is going to be. Faerun, they really haven't deviated from that like I think people wanted them to. Uh, but maybe if they do release like a Salt Marsh or, you know, something in Mistara, something in Dragonlance, like people have wanted them to, those would be the times to do it. And this is actually a really cool way to do it the way that they did with Salt Marsh. I, I would have to kind of say that I, I'm very happy with the way that they did it. Super, super detailed. And even though it was like a little tiny chunk of Greyhawk. Um, self-contained enough and gives you a lot of really cool stuff to play with for mm-hmm. nautical adventures, even if you don't get to use all of it in the same book. Um, yeah, no, and this is, I mean, this release as as a, from a non-Adventures League perspective, because I'm not really, uh, don't have the time to be that involved in Adventures League. Um, from But from that non-Adventures League perspective, like this has been the format for releases for the last few years anyway, that there is a, a release in the spring that is um, less, it's not necessarily a new storyline, and then in the fall there's the new storyline. Mm. Uh, and so you've always got something to sort of play with. Uh, in the spring to continue forward if you finish the, the fall story, uh, but... But it's not really the new story, right? This year it was Salt Marsh. Last year it was Yawning Portal, um, and I can't go back too far b- before I lose track of what was released when. I was about to say, uh, I but don't in the, it, think there was like a because like Yawning Portal had a really weird set of like three adventures that came with it, and then there were three epics, and it was 
it was very strange from an event. Like, I'm primarily an Adventures League player and DM. Um, Salt Marsh will be the first time that I'm running Homebrew on its own, probably not doing organized play in five or more years. Um, but, like, all the previous books, before you got to Yawning Portal, they had seasons. Like, everything was kind of woven together. Right. And then Yawning Portal was really weird. And Salt Marsh is going off on this crazy tangent. So, her nerves. Right. And, and, you know, in the, in the early years of of wizards releases for fifth edition uh it was a new a a completely new storyline uh twice a year right uh but it seems like now they're they're while they're ramping up the number of products a little bit um from basically two a year to to and then they creeped up to three a year when they first hit with uh sword coast um and then, uh, and now they're now they're up to what is it going to be this year? One, two, three, at least four, uh, not including the box set. Um, mm-hmm. Five, uh, five, because there's Salt Marsh, six, um, Acquisitions Inc., Eberron, uh, Descent into Avernus. What, so those are the the four big hardcovers I was thinking of. Then there's the the new box uh, starter set. What else? And the um, Stranger Things set, right? Yep. Oh, was that this year? Yep. Yep. That's so that's great. two starter sets in one year. That's weird. <laughs> but... yep. And weird. they're going to they do got... a Rick and Morty starter set as well. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing the Rick and Morty uh... version too. Now, now the difference between that and what we saw in the early years is that I think a lot of these are are officially Watsy published, but but licensed products being done by other people like acquisition acquisitions Inc had people on the Watsy team that sort of coordinated with them, but it wasn't designed and written by them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and even this book salt marsh was completely, so far as I know, Watsy's idea, but they, 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 uh, farmed it out to Cobalt press to do all the work. I, uh, yeah, but I mean, I, like, wasn't, uh, Kate Welsh still the head developer of the product? Like, I mean, they still had, uh, no, no, she, I'm, she may have, but but in terms of like the writing and, and all of that kind of stuff, um, the impression I got was that it looked like Cobalt Press did 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 most of that kind of work. I guess is what I'm saying. Well, I, I, they they did. To be fair, it was mostly conversion. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, um, and, and and they didn't actually beef up too much of the adventures themselves, uh, from what I can tell. Um, I mean, they did, but like the mm. the salt marsh section wasn't in the original adventures. They just added that section, and that's probably where the majority of the beef went in. That and uh, the the appendix, um, and everything else was just they're re retouching up these yeah. original adventures. No, and when I say that that they they farmed it out to Cobalt Press, I mean that in the way that like they did in those early days when they hired a studio. Sure. But then, but then had the, you know, but it was based off of their outline and their design team and their editing and whatever, right? Is that it looks a lot like that? I mean, it, it was Wolfgang Bauer, uh, John Sawatsky, Steve Winter. Those are all uh, Cobalt Press guys. Yeah. I don't know uh, Joseph McCullough, and obviously I know James Intercasso well, but yeah. uh, and he's not necessarily a, a um, Cobalt person. But oh, he's he's worked with them enough to be. Oh, absolutely, say, yeah. but he but he's also worked with Watsi and other people enough sure. to to not you know. So the 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 one question I I have important question that has come to my mind have having read this is what did Mike Cole do? 
Who? Mike Cole. Oh, Mike Cole. I don't even know who that is. Yeah, me either. Uh, he is a science fiction fantasy writer. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, and he is also a uh, sort of a, a security consultant, uh, former veteran. Uh, like He's the sort of guy that people go to to talk about cybersecurity and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and uh, very... He's very popular online, um, w- uh, you know, on Twitter and the like. Um, but his uh, his fantasy series, uh, uh, the Armored Saint and the Queen of Crows, is really good, and all of this stuff. But uh, I don't know so, what he did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so this is this has also become the norm for Watsi. I think is that they all they tend to bring in. Um, sort of their celebrity consultant to sort of consult on world building and design and the creativity piece of it, whether it's them or it's been. Um, yeah, didn't Matt Mercer do that for one? Matt Mercer did did, um, did one. Isn't uh, Joe Mangiello uh, coming in for Avernus? Oh, is he? Yeah. Uh, and, and they've also had the the um, Patrick Rothfuss, I think, has done one. Um, and and maybe the the uh, not Rick and Morty, but the other one, the, the Adventure Time guy. Great, um, gosh, uh, Pendleton Ward. Yeah, so I, uh, he's come in for one. Mm-hmm. So so they've done this before. So I, I guess Mike Cole is is that person for this one. Yeah, I, the the design consultant service is Will Ansel, who I had not heard of, and of and Mike Cole, and I was like, well, what did they have him do? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'm I'm curious. I like I like his stuff, and he's. He's very knowledgeable about history. Like he, mm-hmm. uh, his most recent release is a book of nonfiction about Roman legions and the the Greek phalanxes, and you know it's. So he may have helped with a lot of the development of Salt Marsh and, and creation of the cultures and the and all that stuff that wasn't there in the original. Which maybe his connection to history explains why it feels like New England during a certain time period for Tracy. So, you know, yeah, uh, out of the book's out, we could probably just ask him on Twitter and then add it to the show notes. We probably or could, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so, yeah. I, it, the only reason it came up is, is I, I was rereading the book in preparation uh, for the podcast today, and I looked at the credits and I was like, wait, I didn't notice that before. Why is he here? Uh-huh. <laughs> yep, they do that kind of stuff. Um, so anyway, we're, we're at about the hour mark. I should probably go ahead and just ask, what last thoughts do people have? Does anybody else have something that they noticed about the the book or the the way you know uh, the way it's laid out, the the art, the stories, the conversion, uh, anything that you wanted to mention but we haven't had the opportunity to get to yet? Um, this is the, your lightning round. What do you what do you what do you guys have? So as the the new person, I'll go first. Um, the thing that I noticed was that after. Um, so after Dragon Heist and a couple other things where uh, they've done a really good job of including more races and being better about the gender balance and things like that, it looks like Saltmarsh is a whole bunch of white dudes. Um, and I get the New England reference and that it might be Greyhawk, maybe the reason for that. Um, but I was a little surprised and a bit taken aback that it was it had been trending towards more inclusive and seemed to be less so for this book. Yeah, I think that's fair. It is. I, I had noticed that to a certain extent myself, and I wasn't sure 
but you know, if it was a case of me just not reading thoroughly enough, but yeah, it did look a lot like, you know, the NPCs here are sort of not explicitly, you know, designed to be inclusive. And the artwork is usually a good place to tell whether or not there's efforts in that, in that regard as well. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, I had noticed that, um, I mean, I, I don't think it was explicitly not. I don't think they were like, well, we tried that once. We're not going to go back to it. Oh, no, I don't think that was the case either yeah. at all. But I, I just it's one of those things that having seen the trend going so possibly in a way, I was just like, oh, this this is a lot of a lot of white dudes. And like there's one gay couple that's in Salt Marsh that's, you know, explicitly mm-hmm. stated. But um like yep. after we had Fala uh, in Dragon Heist, which is a specific they them uh, NPC, I was like, oh, no, none of that's here. That 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 all all of that inclusion stuff happens in the big city, not in the coastal town, I guess. Though to be fair, uh, they don't actually explicitly describe uh, the sort of racial makeup of most of the characters and the uh, only artwork we get is actually pretty diverse. There's a lot of Asian and uh, 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 African stock mixed in with the, the white guys as, as well. So it's not completely one-sided in that regard. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Other last thoughts? Uh, I was just going to say with the recent kind of, uh, I don't want to call it necessarily merchandising, but it seems like they were doing a lot of pushes with each release of like, here's an extra thing you can buy a map pack or, you know, some, some kind of a thing. And they're going to do that with Avernus as well. If they had done some kind of a map pack with uh, salt marsh, that would have been a bunch of boats. It would have made me so happy uh, because mm. um, I've had to cobble together different kinds of like boat maps for a few sea adventures that I've had to run in the past. And that would have made my life easier, and I imagine other people's as well. But um, sadly, they did not. And, but uh, hopefully, hopefully, maybe another time. Yeah, I'm feeling that pain too. Other than the falling star, which is uh, really spendy, um, there's not a whole lot of like opportunities for uh, boats. Thankfully, Paizo did put out a bunch of uh, boat flip grids uh, that you can still mm-hmm. get on Amazon and probably at Noble Knight. Yeah, and also there's a bunch of suppliers on uh, DM's Guild that you can download. True. Uh, uh, that, uh, and Roll20, if you use Roll20, there are a bunch of them up there as well. Um, so they're, they're available, but yeah, it would have been nice if uh, there'd been uh, some more physical product in that regard. Um, mm-hmm. I, the other thing I'll, I'll point out is, uh, there's some solid maps in this there. Yeah. I have a question about the maps. Uh, and I think this is a function of the fact that I haven't even cracked the spine on my physical copy. I've read it all, um, uh, on the D and D beyond app. Um, so on the D and D beyond map, there are the maps for the DM reference, and then each one of them has a link to the player version of the map that doesn't have anything marked on it, which I found to be really cool. Is that in the physical book? Uh, no. It does not appear to be the case. Yeah. Oh, so the little benefit to people who are 
getting their their book digitally, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, because because every single map there's a little link underneath it that says player version, and you you click on it, and it gives you the exact same map. They just took off the 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 labels, um, which could be super useful. Yeah, um, that the and uh, that is a, a thing that maybe they should w- work on. I think. Yeah, I thought maybe. I thought maybe they'd have it in in an appendix or something, but they don't. It sounds like no. Uh, but the uh, uh, I was just admiring the 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 classic styling of some of the maps. Uh, they show a map of the region around Salt Marsh, and it looks very much like you could have picked it up out of a book of the 1980s to a certain extent. Mm. Uh, it's hex maps uh, with uh, you know the 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 terrain elevation mapped out and yeah, uh, there are a couple of the adventures have similar sort of hex map. You explore this hex kind of thing going on. So yeah, the mapping is sort of a, a, a thing for you to visit. If you're looking for how maps used to be as compared to how maps are done today. Cause you also have the Mike Schley maps in here as well. So you have those to sort right. of compare against each other. Right. And Dyson Logos, who they've been using a lot uh, in the last few products, was the other cartographer for this that mm-hmm. I think was a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, his classic sort of style, right? You get a lot from him there. Yeah. And, and, they, and they've, they continue to sort of play with it and develop it. And I think um, I like the direction they're going. Um, you know, the, his maps in Dragon Heist were beautiful, but didn't feel like they sort of fit into the aesthetic of the rest of the book. Um, and then they used him in the, the previous book. What was what was in between there? I don't remember now. But, uh, Mad, Mad, Mage, Mad, Mad Mage? Mad, Mad Mage, maybe. Uh, was and it, it fit Tomb in a little bit better there. Maybe? Or did you say before or uh, after? I don't know. Wait. I think it was after. After Dragon Heist. Right, right. It was uh, Mad So it might have been Mad Mage, yeah. And then in this one as well, like it, it fits in. Like it's it's a it's a different sort of style, right? It's the, they've gone blue scale uh in this book for the maps. Uh but it, it, it kind of fits the aesthetic of the, the book in large uh, largely, I guess, you know. So it works. Uh, I like that they've they're figuring out how to incorporate his style and, and fit it into their aesthetic. Uh so I know we kind of touched on it a little earlier. I do like that a lot of the adventures have different feels to them, um, which was good to me because it was examples of how to pull off different types of uh, feelings you might want to get at the table. So like we already talked about Scooby-Doo. There's another one where you're trying to uh, gain the confidence of the lizard folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, it's more similar to the types of adventures I like to write where um you kind of get penalized if you're a murder hobo, <laughs> just spoilers. Uh, so, um, so I really liked that part of it. Um, and I do know that my, that pe- the people I like to play with would probably particularly Fred would love the fact that you can kit out your ship with all sorts of things that <laughs> you can add to it. If you happen to get one. Oh yeah. Hey, we should mention that's a big draw of just running the first adventure in the set is the players at the end, if they play their cards right, can get a ship. Yeah, and that that would make a lot of the later like, oh, well, if they need to get to this place, they can get a rowboat from the town or whatever. Uh, that makes that all moot, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. now they got their own ship that they can slowly build up and kit out as they go. Right on. Other last thoughts? 
All right. Should we call it? Sure. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Then I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that that is the end of the episode. We'd like to say thank you to our sponsor, Noble Knight. Um, to listeners that support the show through our affiliate links with Amazon and DM Skilled, as well as those who support us directly through patreon.com slash the Tome Show, like Jill Sanders, Leonard Pelletier, Jeremiah McCoy, Doug Palmer, and new patrons Ian Becker and Ben Longman. We'd also like to thank our guests, Ben. Ben, where can find, uh, folks find you on the internet? Yeah, folks can find me on Twitter at, at ZentarumPR um, or on the Feats and Fables podcast. So you're the the PR department for the Zentara. So that was my original character concept for Adventures League was I was going to uh, get as many people as I could to join the Zentarum by being their PR department. (laughs) And I think I got five people to switch factions throughout the various cons before they just, you know, pulled apart all of the importance of the factions. Uh, For a while, I was doing the faction a Facebook group for the Zentarum um, and helping to do that role play there that eventually led to some of the Red War stuff, which uh, that was all the Emerald Enclave's fault. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeremiah, where can folks find you? Uh, I have a website, jeremiahmccoy.com. Keep it simple there. Uh, and I have on Twitter as uh, at technoir. Uh, there should also be a new episode of Monster Psychologist coming out soon on this feed. Probably before this episode does. Yeah. I... <laughs> um, and Israel, follow that up. <laughs> yes. Uh, nothing super exciting for me, but uh, uh, I can be found on Twitter primarily under Elven Wizard King or King Lorathorn, uh, and I'm pretty active on there. I'm also, of course. Uh, can be found anywhere that um, the Tome Show can because I am the social media manager. So uh, anything you send their way will come to me as well. Uh, and um, I have recently started doing a uh, a live stream game with Eugenio Vargas on the Greyhawk channel on Mondays at, I want to say, 1 p.m., 2 p.m., um, Eastern Standard Time. So if you know of the Greyhawk channel on Twitch, look for me there. And if not, they run games every day, and it's really cool. Hold on. And you also do some writing. You've got some stuff. People can check you out on DMs Guild, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I've got two things on DMs Guild, uh, which is the Aurora's Whole Realm, Whole Realm quarterly catalogs, uh, summer and uh, uh, summer and fall so far. Uh, winter is soon to come out. And then on Drive Through RPG, I've got a bunch of other stuff. Uh, fifth edition related. Look for Ismael Alvarez specifically, and you'll find my stuff. Uh, or Fat Goblin Games fifth edition stuff. Right on. There you go. Look for him over there. Uh, if you want to reach out to the show, you can email the Tome Show at gmail dot com. Uh, that is one of the um, uh, media contact that doesn't go to Ishmael. It goes straight to me. Uh, as well as the Twitter, which is at the Tome Show, goes straight to me. Other than that, it's all Ishmael. Uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. You can reach out to Tracy. She is at Sarah Dark Magic. Um, yeah, that's how you can find us. And that's episode 321, where we made friends and influenced lizard folk as part of a relaxing beach vacay in this episode of...
I'm on the wall.